the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. Apple announced it will delay a controversial plan to install photo scanning capabilities onto its devices, purportedly meant to combat child sexual abuse and exploitation. As part of the plan, the company would install a feature on every phone that will scan all photos on iCloud to see if they match photos on a child sexual abuse database. The program would also include a feature that scans iMessage images on children's accounts for sexually explicit material. Apple's decision to postpone the installation of photo scanning features follows a massive campaign in September led by activists, cyber experts, and consumers. They say that the new software poses a threat to digital privacy and could easily be redirected as a tool for mass surveillance. With us to talk about the issue is Joe Mullen, policy activist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He spoke with Digital Village's co-host, Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Hi. Tell me about Apple's plans to scan phones. Isn't it a good thing that they're fighting child exploitation and abuse? No, this isn't the right way to do it. At the end of the day, we can and should fight against crimes against children that are committed online, but putting people under a mass surveillance program is not the right way to do that. Can you explain? Yeah, well, when you have a type of scanning that is happening on people's devices, it's not scanning for the benefit of the user, it's not scanning that's under the control of the user, and it's the information is ultimately shared with a third party, uh, either parents or the government or Apple, then that's mass surveillance. That's going to be a gift to authoritarian regimes, especially, that have been looking for a way to pressure tech companies to collaborate with them more. And some of those countries have existing regimes of surveillance and censorship already. I mean, I know that technology is always evolving, but this sounds very much like stories in the past where you see big tech trying to put in something intrusive in our devices in the name of protecting children. Is this any different? What we've called the crypto wars have been going on for decades now, and essentially encryption is vital for protecting our privacy and security online. Without strong encryption, we're vulnerable not just to governments, but also to criminals. Various government agencies, especially in the U.S. federal law enforcement agencies, have been asking for special access to encrypted messages for decades now. They've been asking for it in different ways, and they've been using different reasons. But at EFF, we've been fighting against that because there's no backdoor to encryption that only helps the good guys. Any backdoor you create to an end-to-end encrypted service is going to harm the privacy and security of all users. So essentially, you just don't want to open this kind of Pandora's box of really bad things happening. That's right. It was only about five years ago when the government was saying, the FBI specifically was saying that because of terrorist attacks, they needed tech companies to build a special access method so that they could get more encrypted information. At that time, we at EFF were fighting and protesting on Apple's behalf because Apple was correctly refusing to build that for the FBI. This was after the San Bernardino shootings. The reasons for it have changed over time, and the exact methods that the government has been asking for have changed over time, but there's been a long battle over the need for encryption in the U.S. and worldwide. We just can't live without it. There's no way to have privacy and security online without solid encryption. 
what is that and what is end-to-end encryption? Encryption is a code. It's a, it's a way of making messages impossible to read until they get to their proper recipient. So what we mean by end-to-end encryption is encryption that is so strong that it's only possible for it to be read by the person who sends the message and the person or persons who are meant to receive the message. So critically, that leaves out the service that delivers the message. So even if they wanted to, because they wanted to read it themselves or because they were collaborating with a government that wanted to read the message, the service doesn't have access to the message. They don't have the key. Only the sender of the message and the receiver of the message has the key. So short of an in-person, face-to-face conversation, which would be the most type of secure message, which isn't always possible, and using an end-to-end encrypted service is your best bet. Can you tell us how do these scanning features work and what types do we have? Apple is proposing to install two different types of scanning systems on users' phones. One type of scanning would look at any photos that are backed up on Apple's cloud service, and it would compare them to a national database of child abuse images that are maintained by a quasi-government organization called the National Center for Exploited Children. second type of scanning would be applied to the phones of minors, that is, users under 18, and it would use an Apple machine learning algorithm to scan for a much broader set of images. So not a set database of, of actually criminal images, like the first type of scanning, but a, a scanner that would look more generally for what Apple is calling, quote, sexually explicit images. And then that system would send warnings to the users, and it would also in some cases send warnings to the user's parents. And what exactly constitutes a sexually explicit image? And how can we depend on a machine to determine what that is? We can't. (laughs) What is sexually explicit varies from culture to culture, even within the U.S. And we know that algorithms like this always have false positives. And those false positives tend to fall heavily on vulnerable groups. When you're scanning for something like nudity, it won't necessarily be able to tell the difference between um, an innocent image and a not innocent image. The kinds of false positives you could see might be people sending their own medical images. It could be victims of abuse showing images of themselves to trusted people that they're trying to get help from. And it it also tends to fall heavily on minorities. So LGBT groups are really concerned about scanners like this. So, and if you can explain to someone how this could turn out to be something sinister, how hard would it be to change a scanning program that looks for these kinds of sexually explicit images into a tool of mass surveillance? A big concern is that these scanners could be expanded Uh, Once they have on-device software looking for images and then reporting back to Apple or the government, there's going to be enormous pressure to expand what gets looked for. And we've seen in other countries governments successfully apply pressure to change how devices work in different ways. So, for example, in Russia, There was a threat of prosecution against uh, Apple and Google employees to coerce them to remove an app that was created by an opposition political party. And they complied. They removed the app. And that's just a recent example. There's a pretty long track record of these companies just having to capitulate to government pressure in different situations. What we said at EFF is, if you build it, they will come. There are regimes with existing censorship laws in place, surveillance laws in place, and it's just too dangerous to build an on-device scanner that those governments will ask for access to. So political parties, material from opposition parties, that's very obvious, but it seems like it, it can almost go in any direction in terms of what you are targeting. That's right. So, for example, in Thailand, it's been long 
criminal to make fun of the king and the monarchy in certain ways, and we would be concerned about government pressure to scan for certain images in a regime like that. And similarly, when you have situations of mass protests, dissidents are going to share images and sensitive information. And so we've also seen pressures like this in, in China, for example. So we're, we're concerned about governments asking to expand what they're scanning for. But it isn't just authoritarian regimes that are trying to get their hands on encrypted material. Isn't uh, places like the UK trying to access encrypted material as well? Yeah, that's that's right. In the United Kingdom, to some extent, there's already uh, on the books about this. The, the UK has an Investigatory Powers Act, which allows their Secretary of State to issue what are called technical capacity notices. And that could compel companies to distribute an update that would facilitate the execution of equipment interference warrant. Essentially, we're worried about laws that already have been debated, at least in places like the UK, where if companies have the technical capacity to do certain types of surveillance, they can be compelled by the government to do that. I'm just looking at the UK. Aren't there already strong privacy laws in that region? There's kind of two different things happening. I mean, we could think about privacy rights vis-a-vis corporations and privacy rights vis-a-vis governments. In the EU, you're right. They do have uh, pretty strong privacy laws and, in fact, offer their citizens some protections that U.S. citizens don't have. So you see, for example, the GDPR, which is an EU privacy law. That's the reason that a lot of the websites we go to now, you have to do like a click-through saying that you approve their cookie policies, for example. A lot of that is about GDPR compliance. But European countries, including the U.K., have surveillance agencies that have extraordinary powers. And government surveillance is a a different thing, and they're not always going to follow those laws. They're not always bound by them. Okay, so you're saying in in terms of the government, they kind of override whatever protections they have? Some of the most common protections you hear about are like the GDPR, and now in California, right, we have a new online privacy law, the CCPA. Government agencies that get warrants for searches don't need to follow those laws. And at EFF, we're concerned about law enforcement agencies that do get warrants still needing to abide by constitutional limits. And we're also concerned about different mass surveillance programs that have happened or could occur in the future that just aren't constitutional. We saw with the widespread NSA surveillance, a lot of the details of which were revealed by Edward Snowden, that mass surveillance is a problem. Not only does it go beyond privacy laws, like the California and EU privacy laws, but they don't follow our own laws, and in some cases they've been unconstitutional. Are we seeing any kind of rising resistance to this type of program in the U.S., or is this something that's still not known in this country? I mean, I think there was a fair amount of publicity about it, and Apple has said they're going to delay these programs while they listen to different parties, including their us, including their critics, and they're going to rethink these things. We're glad they're listening. We hope they do rethink it. We think they need to cancel the plans altogether. But there has been a lot of resistance. At EFF, we had a petition, and together with two allied organizations that also had petitions, we got about 60,000 people to sign all those petitions, asking Apple to cancel these plans. We presented those petitions. We had protests at some Apple stores last month when they had their big September product launch. So there's been a lot of resistance, and we hope they'll listen and we hope they'll come around. This is a company that actually has done a pretty good job of protecting its customers' privacy in the past, and we hope they can come back to that. This is the company that in 2019 had a big marketing campaign where they said privacy that's iPhone. They had ads that say what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. They broadcast those ads all over the world. So that's something that users took those promises seriously. And we're just here to remind Apple of that. Right, which doesn't 
seem to make sense, given the fact that it seems like they have been capitulating to the requests of these authoritarian regimes. What's their advantage to that? Is just merely trying to sell phones in these countries? Right now, in the beginning, they said they're only going to launch this program in the U.S. So I think that they are being subject to the same, from some of the same agencies that, ha- that they've been subject to for a long time. But somehow this new tactic of instead of talking about needing to pursue the dangers of terrorists, they're now talking about crimes against children. Some of the same asks on the same companies are now seem to be working where before they didn't. Okay. Now you're saying that they are delaying plans and your organization probably wants them to cancel the plans instead of making improvements. I mean, is any part of it salvageable? Well, we think companies should keep their promises on encryption. That's the most important thing. There are things that can be done improve child safety. I don't think those things are really in the direction of surveillance, which is the direction that Apple seems to be going. For example, you could have better reporting mechanisms. That would be really great. And, I mean, I think that is something that can really help children and families, people who get unwanted communications, unwanted texts, effective reporting mechanisms can be a really good thing. And so in other words, no, there is no part that's salvageable. Is that what you're kind of implying? Of the two scanning systems that Apple has proposed, we think that the systems that they have that are currently end-to-end encrypted should stay that way. There's no situation in which we're going to say users are better off if their messages are run through third parties. That's just not the case. That affects everyone's privacy and security. So it's, it's not worth the trade-off. If you're really concerned about safety and child safety, there are things that can be done. There are features that could be added. There's help that could be given that doesn't break the promise of end-to-end encryption. And what you had just mentioned before, it is the type of better reporting that you think is better than surveillance. Yeah, that would be a better strategy to pursue, sure. Can you explain a little bit what better reporting would look like? Yes. So, for example, I have an iPhone right now, okay? I can block a caller, but there's no button on my iPhone where I can tell Apple something more about that caller. So if they're concerned, for example, with, like, adults contacting minors who are strangers or who give weird communications who shouldn't be contacting that minor, they could offer a reporting mechanism that's specifically about that, that allows you to give more detail to the company right away in a clear manner. That's an example of a better reporting mechanism. Okay. And it seems to also empower the the underage user as well, instead of just being surveilled. Right. That's what users of all ages want. And just because you're under 18 doesn't mean you shouldn't ever be able to have a private conversation. And kids aren't safer. Kids don't feel safer. They're not better off when they're put under surveillance programs. What are we looking down the road? What kind of movement are we seeing down the road in terms of this issue? We don't know what's going to happen next. Apple is rethinking their position, and they're actively in conversations about it. So we expect to hear something soon. Well, all right. Thanks so much for joining the show. Sure thing. Thanks for your interest. It was great talking to you. That was EFF policy activist Joe Mullen. He spoke with Digital Village's Leilani Elbano. The World Health Organization, in a new special report, describes climate change as the single biggest health threat facing humanity. It outlines 10 recommended climate and health actions, along with the research in support of why each action is beneficial. From wildfires and droughts to hurricanes and flooding, the report covers the cost of climate change in millions of lives and untold billions of dollars and what we need to do to combat it. With us today to talk about the issue is Desi Doyen, Green News reporter for Bradblog.com and KPFK's Bradcast. Hello, this is Rick Allen for Digital Village, and I'm speaking with Desi Doyen. Green News Reporter for Bradblog.com and KPFK's own Bradcast Show. Hello, Desi. Hey, Rick. I was uh, recently doing a lot of reading and, and listening 
to various shows, and one of the things that caught my ear, a quote from a fireman, uh, 15 years ago, a 100,000-acre fire would be the largest fire of your career. Now we have 1 million acre fires. It's hard even for us to comprehend, unquote. Yes. It's sad, actually. And it, it is a sign of the changing climate that we have created as humans burning fossil fuels that now California, for example, routinely sees one million acre fires. The Dixie Fire, for example, uh, up in Northern California is already approaching a million acre fire. It is going to be months before it's completely put out. And it follows along in recent years, as you know, these major fires that have uh, decimated parts of Northern California and parts of Southern California. You know, specifically, for example, the worst one as far as the number of lives lost, the uh, 2018 fire, campfire uh, that destroyed the town of Paradise, Paradise California. Right. Yeah. So these are events that are going to be happening more often now as climate scientists told us would happen decades ago with uh, man-made global warming. Right. Monumental fires is what we're talking about. Yes, huge, huge fires, and, and they're burning so hot and so uh, far, so large. I mean, like the, the one you're talking about in Santa Barbara, that one is uh, already around 22 square miles, and it, it's up very quickly. Um, and that's partly because California is in uh, another historic drought. Right. Uh, we actually appear to be entering into a mega drought in the southwest, and California is part of that. And there, there's a couple of different mechanisms that are at play here. One of them is that the Pacific Ocean is warming up, and that is also helping to change rainfall patterns, which uh, is also related to Arctic ice melt, which is also changing rainfall patterns. Now, that specific part of the climate change system that we're dealing with right now is uh, is under active research right now about how the loss of Arctic sea ice is changing the jet stream patterns, causing it to slow down and meander, and that is what drives weather systems across the United States, including California. And when you change the Arctic sea ice, and that in turn changes the jet stream, that in turn also changes where rainfall happens. So we have a combination of historic drought and a drying out of the West that was predicted by climate scientists, and then also this different mechanism of changing rainfall patterns caused by the loss of sea ice, they believe. So we have a lot of different factors that are at play. Another new factor that in a study that just came out the other day that I haven't had a chance to report on in the Green News Report is there are signs that the atmosphere itself is drying out faster. It's hotter. It is desiccating the landscape faster. Um, it's actually sucking the moisture out of the soil and of plants because it is getting so much drier. So the, what they would call the vapotranspiration deficit, basically the, the heat and the, uh, it pulls the moisture out of, of the soil and the plants, and it's greater than it used to be. They can actually measure this, and it's actually increased over time. So when we look at this, uh, you know, the Western wildfires, that's just one component of, of climate change that's happening in California itself. You know, we're also getting more extreme heat because we've warmed the Earth already about 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So the baseline itself is higher. So when we do get these heat waves, they, are, they come on faster, they last longer, and they're hotter than they used to be. The cycle keeps uh, uh, reinforcing itself. Uh, each each yes, thing leads yes, to the other, which the leads to the original. The hydrological cycle. We're changing the water cycle That's so it. that the dries get drier and the wets get wetter. So we'll get more rainfall in places that are subject to rainfall. It'll become. It'll be more intense. It will last longer. It will move slower, giving these weather systems more time to dump more rain. And then in the alternate, when you have a dry area, they're getting drier with fewer, lesser rainfall. Right. Just to remind people, we are speaking with Desi Dorian of the Green News Report from uh, bradblog.com and KPFK's Bradcast Show. Uh, Desi, you suggested a couple of things. So let's look at uh, something from CNN uh, that was uh, quite shocking. 18 weather and climate disasters have killed over 500 people 
and cost over $100 billion, that's just in the U.S. alone. I, I, I don't even know how to talk about this first. I, I just that... Uh, I know. Where do you start, Yeah. Right? Uh, this is according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. It's NOAA, N-O-A-A, yes. And in the first nine months of 2021, the U.S. has already faced 18 disasters that have cost more than a billion dollars, according to NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Now, this is the seventh consecutive year the U.S. has had more than 10 disasters totaling more than a billion dollars? Yes. And uh, sadly, extreme weather disasters are extremely expensive, and they're getting a lot more expensive. So, you know, yeah, we are right now in 2021, we are on pace to have one of the most active and most expensive years for disaster in U.S. history. Um, you know, we can, for example, we've got the Western wildfires. As you know, those are cost billions of dollars uh, total. And we're talking, and by the way, when NOAA calls them billion-dollar weather disasters, that means that it's an individual disaster that ultimately ends up costing more than a billion dollars in economic losses and damages. So, you know, they can cost much more than a billion dollars. Right. So we're talking about the Western wildfires that we've had so and, far and this year. Uh, and, Remember and the yeah. deadly winter deep freeze in Texas? Right. Killed, you know, more than 100 people. That also cost something like 200-something billion dollars. And then there's the hurricanes from yeah. from hot to cold to fire to water. Yeah, because remember, like, for example, Hurricane Ida. Let's focus on that one. Hurricane Ida, you know, it landed as a uh, Category 4 storm, and then it proceeded to decimate New Orleans' electrical grid, knocking down all of its transmission lines that had just been put up that the uh, energy company, the utility company, had said, yes, we're totally weatherized and ready for storms. Well, no, they weren't. So that had flooding, and then also had the losses, the business economic losses, and the people who died from the heat waves uh, and the humidity from having zero air conditioning right after Hurricane Ida destroyed their electric system. So that takes weeks and weeks to rebuild. And then Hurricane Ida moved across the country, dumping rain everywhere, causing flooding everywhere, and then it hit New York City and New Jersey, where it killed a number of people because the city was not prepared, does not have the flood infrastructure for that kind of storm. You know, the New York City, New Jersey, uh, New York State, all of our infrastructure across the entire country was built for 20th century stable weather that we're accustomed to, stable climate that we kind of have a sense of at the time, how bad it could get. Well, it turns out things are getting much worse, much faster, much more intense. And New York City, for example, their subway is not built for a 21st century climate changed uh, system. Just like when when they say, "Well, we uh, in New Orleans, uh, we we built it to withstand a storm." They were talking about Katrina, not what's happening now. Right, and uh, you know, Hurricane Ida is now the fifth costliest hurricane to ever make landfall in the United States. So, you know, the good news, at least for New Orleans, was that the levees did hold. Right. Katrina was one of the most expensive. Uh, hurricanes ever to hit. And of course, as we know, it, it killed over a thousand people and caused, you know, years worth, billions of dollars in damages. So at least that portion of the infrastructure that was built, rebuilt to withstand these stronger storms and greater storm surge, that held. But it wasn't enough to take care of all the other parts of critical infrastructure that are also important and that we also need to spend money to uh, right now to invest in and get ready for these these changes in the climate that are going to decimate our infrastructure. And let's talk about the hurricanes. What what has climate change have to do with more and more powerful and far-reaching hurricanes? Well, so there's a couple of different things. Um, it doesn't look like, at least right now, Climate change uh, is not, you know, it doesn't cause the weather event. We should be clear about that. Right. Climate change doesn't cause it. It makes it more intense. Right. So it turbocharges the weather systems that we get. So there doesn't seem to be an increase in the number, the overall number of hurricanes. However, there is an increase in the number of major hurricanes. In other words, more hurricanes are intensifying into major hurricanes, which is category three, four, or five. And not only are they intensifying more frequently into more major 
major hurricanes, they're also intensifying faster. They're spinning up faster. It's called literally rapid intensification. Mm-hmm. It used to be that rapid intensification when a hurricane, you know, NOAA and the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center would say, oh, look, there's a, there's a thing that our satellites are noting out there in the middle of the Atlantic. There appears to be a storm brewing. Well, Or in the Gulf of Mexico, there appears to be a storm that's trying to brew. Well, in the past, it wouldn't intensify that quickly. Nowadays, we're seeing hurricanes intensify very fast, going from zero to category three or four or even five within 24 to 72 hours. And for, um, I think it was last year, Hurricane Michael uh, hit into the, the, the Gulf of Florida on the western side of uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. It spun up from, I think it was like a category one to a category five within 24 hours so fast that the people didn't have time to evacuate. Wow. That's the kind of rapid intensification that we're talking about right. that makes this very dangerous, like with Hurricane Ida as well, moving up very fast that people don't have time to prepare and they don't have time to evacuate. Andrew uh, Friedman uh, from uh, Axios uh, went even farther and, and said, well, these hurricanes are causing flooding and flooding could shut down a quarter of all critical infrastructure in the U.S. Now, that you, we're talking infrastructure like crazy nowadays and with Biden's bill. Uh, how much of a uh, impact will that cause? Oh, it's it's huge. Unfortunately, yeah. So uh, talking about two different things, um, two different components of this. Uh, mm-hmm. There is storm surge that comes from, you know, in coastal areas where you've got, because of rising sea levels, you know, the sea levels have risen about a foot over the last century. So that's a higher baseline for storm surge from hurricanes that pushes all that water inland. Uh, so that's one aspect of the flooding that uh, Andrew Friedman is talking about. And then we've got inland flooding, which happens throughout the United States. Right. Uh, when you have these slow-moving storms that, like I said, can can slow down and meander and have lots of time to park over a region. And Whereas dump before, rain. they would move on quickly and you'd get, you know, 15 minutes of rain, a day of rain maybe at, at best. Now they stay and they hang out and they park and they dump tons and tons and tons and tons of rain, like Hurricane Harvey, which was super slow-moving. And because you had both, the combination for Hurricane Harvey, for example, of the storm surge moving in and then also the inland flooding draining out to the coast. People get squished in the middle, and it's a compound flooding in, uh, situation where you have both inland flooding on rivers and uh, on you know the, the paved areas where the, the, the flood has no place to go, so it, intend, it in, ends up going down you know highway channels. Um, yeah. You have that together with the storm surge. So that's a bad thing in the coastal area, but it also happens inland as well, like across Hurricane Ida. When Hurricane Ida went from Louisiana to New Jersey, it also caused a lot of flooding because it was moving so slowly. It caused a lot of flooding in areas that were hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the coast. Yes. So what you're talking about here is this this really... A troubling new study that was done by a group called First Street. Right. And what they do is they did the first national comprehensive flood inventory, flood risk inventory. Uh, they looked not just at uh, residential areas, which is what the uh, federal government has, you know, flood maps uh, done by FEMA, where FEMA says, okay, this is where we expect flooding to go. And it'll be in the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the historical flooding levels around uh, the last hundred years, which are woefully out of date. And so they have to upgrade those. But the FEMA flood maps only cover residential areas. The First Street new flood risk inventory uh, takes it to a whole new level. They actually look at the flood risk for communities as a whole. So you have, like, uh, what happens with hospitals, what happens with roads, what happens with police stations and fire stations, water systems, sewage systems, highways, everything. So they found that one in four critical infrastructure systems are at risk now from this higher intensity of flooding that we are getting with man-made climate change, and that is going to get worse. And that's, that, I think, is probably the, the scariest takeaway, because when you have one quarter of your infrastructure that is at risk of becoming of either failing entirely or becoming inoperable, then you have a huge problem on your hands that, that we're definitely not ready for. 
So, you know, if your hospitals, your roads, your power plants, for example, yes. all go down in an area, it's going to be much, much harder to prevent loss of life and to uh, recover from that. And that's going to cost even more money in the long term trying to recover. And uh, there is a PDF that uh, I downloaded. I didn't read the whole thing. But what I did do was peruse a few states, and it has a comprehensive breakdown of counties, what, what's happening in those counties. I mean, it. you know, I, I did California and Michigan and Colorado and uh, I, I think uh, in Jersey. And it it's uh, it, it's really phenomenal. So if if people want to download that uh, from First Street, uh, the, the uh, let me see what would they Google? Uh, yeah, or you can look up. You can basically just do a Google search for one in four critical infrastructure systems at risk from flooding. Okay, and, you know. So we're talking about. Um, Two million, I think, of what the the first street study said. So we got eight million miles of roads in the United States. Two million of the nation's roads right now cannot withstand an average flood. So that means that when more intense floods occur, they'll be even less able to handle that. So, and especially, this is really especially important when you're talking about water systems and sewage systems, because when drinking water goes out, then you have a public health crisis on hand at the same time. Exactly. We're talking with Desi Doyen, Green News reporter from bradblog.com and KPFK's own broadcast show. And we're talking about what climate change is doing uh, just just across the uh, across the United States where we're not even taught we haven't even talked much uh, about what's going on around the world. Now, no, I know. Congress is uh, trying to tackle this climate crisis. Uh, they're having a hard time. There's a couple of articles, uh, more than one, talking about how the Congress might blow its biggest opportunity to do such a thing, to to tackle. So the Build Back Better Act, which right. is the uh, widely reported as the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that Biden and the Democrats have put forth in Congress, in reality, it's $350 billion a year because it's stretched out over 10 years, that top-line number. Um, and for comparison, that $350 billion a year, which also includes social spending to shore up human infrastructure and the first meaningful action on climate change for the first time in the United States, so that $350 billion for comparison is about half of what the Pentagon gets yes. in any given year. So we hear about it being $3.5 trillion, but over 10 years, but in reality, the Pentagon is going to get $7.4 trillion over that same period of time. So it's not actually that unusual as far as a top-line spending number, especially when we're talking about investing in uh, U.S. infrastructure, which is crumbling right now because of decades of deferred maintenance. Uh, Republicans and Democrats have talked a lot about uh, passing infrastructure, but it's really difficult to get it done because Republicans in the past in Congress, when they've been in charge, their focus has been on privatizing infrastructure, giving it to uh, uh, corporations to build some toll roads so that you can, okay. as a taxpayer, both pay to build the road itself, and then you get to pay to use it, which then is also a class divide for those people who can afford to use the infrastructure that would then be paid for by tolls. So that's one way of uh, that, that, that has re the reason why we have this decades-long deferred maintenance problem with our infrastructure. So the Build Back Better Act actually contains, like I said, the first meaningful climate policy if ever in the United States. It devotes billions of dollars towards showering up the infrastructure, uh, billions of dollars toward uh, building a an electric vehicle charging network, which will help begin to transition the nation's uh, auto fleet over to electric cars, uh, which will make a huge difference as far as air pollution, which is a huge public health problem. So that would actually pay for itself just in health care savings from reducing air pollution, but uh, will also reduce our emissions, which is you know obviously necessary in order to reduce the impacts of climate change. So it has... Um, it also has more spending uh, to help replace lead water lines around the country because there are inexplicably still uh, lead service lines throughout the country and uh, that 
people are being forced to drink. There's uh, in schools, for example, they've identified uh, say hundreds of schools that have uh, problems with lead in their drinking water, which is insane that we have not fixed that yet because and, yes. lead is exceptionally damaging to children's brains and revamp our flood controls it's got a lot in it obviously but yes we have a problem because we have senator joe manchin and uh, of west virginia and senator cinema of arizona who are blocking passage of the build back better act under budget reconciliation rules which would allow it to pass with uh, and bypass the filibuster from republicans they're doing it to the children uh one one thing i'd like i I would like to thank you for desi is commenting on and it's something that i don't think the democrats are very good at and that's messaging and what you just did was put emphasis not on the amount of money but how it's being spent over a certain amount of time, and you you chose to point out the good things it would do for people. I think if uh, the, the Democrats spent a little more time on the kind of messaging, they should listen to you more. <laughs> well, you know, part of the problem is that the corporate mainstream media is not interested in telling the public what's actually in the Build Back Better Act. They seem to be more caught up in... Um, fomenting the drama, the drama of, oh, it's this much, and so Manchin and Cinema say it's too much, and Republicans say mm-hmm. it's too much, and, and I think that Democrats have a hard time breaking through that, uh, that narrative in order to make it clear that, for, for one thing, um, there's this general data show that every dollar spent on infrastructure generates $6 in economic activity. So, for example, we're all living off of the uh, work that our grandparents did and great-grandparents did uh, after World War II when they built the interstate highway system, for example, and all the ports and the national parks and all of the infrastructure that we now enjoy that we have failed to maintain because of, you know, political partisan divides that have prevented it. So when we spend money on infrastructure, it literally does end up paying for itself in increased economic activity. Now, speaking of Joe Manchin, um, we heard from a couple of Democrats. Uh, Ed Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts, uh, said uh, basically uh, no climate, no deal. How, how is that going over with the mansions and cinemas of the world? It's not going well, sad to say. Um, this no climate, no deal uh, assertion that was, uh, you know, put forth by the progressive Democrats in the Senate, uh, they are absolutely right that these are crucial payments that need to be made. These are crucial provisions and policies that need to be put into place if we're going to set ourselves on the path to be able to cut our emissions in half by 2030. Because that's what climate scientists tell us we need to do, that in order for the world to get on the path to net zero emissions by 2050, which in itself is not a great target, but right now it's the only target we have. But if we're going to get to that place, then we need to start right now. We actually should have started 20 years ago, and we'd be much further along, and it would be much less expensive, and we'd also not be dealing with quite so many extreme weather disasters. But we didn't do that. So right now, we are need to get on to the path of cutting our emissions in half by 2030, and the Build Back Better Act and the climate provisions in it would set us on that path. However, Joe Manchin, senator from the coal state of West Virginia, himself profits millions yeah. of dollars from his coal investments. His entire family is invested in coal, and he is definitely not interested in including any of the provisions in the Build Back Better Act that would limit uh, his profits. Now, I I don't know that. I don't know him personally. It's just that seems to be the most obvious explanation for his resistance to including what is really an ingenious provision that would help all of the utilities across the country transition more quickly to renewable energy. It would actually, you know, basically give them grants. Hey, if you meet these benchmarks by increasing your renewable energy just 4% a year based on what you're capable of doing, not, you know, some uh, top line that everybody has to match, it's basically tailored to every single utility to do what they can do. 
if they increase their own 4% a year, then they get these grants. And if they don't, then they get fined, but they also get, you know, some help from the federal government to help them make that change. Joe Manchin is not interested in that. And uh, right before you called me, there was a, uh, sadly, a, um, a new headline from the New York Times that anonymous sources are reporting that Manchin is insisting that that particular uh, utility payment plan called the Clean Electricity Payment Program is going to be taken out because that's the only thing he will uh, allow. If he's, if that's the only thing he's willing to do. If you take that out, then he'll vote for the budget reconciliation bill. So uh, it's unclear so. if any of the climate provisions are going to make it into the budget reconciliation bill at all, which yeah. is which is terrible, but we have to uh, consider what the options are and continue to work for right. the uh, reducing yeah. the and, and So, by the way, the, uh, the literally UN Climate Summit, yeah. COP26, so basically what he's is saying in to Marky, who said the Senate must pass the reconciliation package before the, the climate the Democrats summit and Trump happens in December, is basically saying is, that ain't going to happen. You're right. Or it's if not it going does to get passed, it's going to be watered down to the point of to uh, regain its credibility yeah. uh, and and try to say, okay, look, fine, we're we're the people as the, a country who are the largest per capita emitters right now in the world. Uh, yes, China overall is a bigger emitter, but we emit in the United States more than anybody in the world per person, and we're also the number one historical emitter uh, right. over the last two hundred years. So. We have a greater responsibility, along with the rest of the developed world, to do more to cut our emissions while the developing world tries to catch up and pull their people out of poverty. I mean, that's only fair. But for Biden to, unfortunately, it looks like he may have to go into the U.N. Climate Summit in November with nothing in hand other than some promises, and that is unlikely to get China and Russia and Brazil and the other big polluters to do much more, to commit to much more, if they can see, well, why should we go when you're not going to? Who knows? Maybe maybe some something will break loose and some, I doubt it, but... <laughs> Uh, it doesn't look promising. Well, the World Health Organization uh, and uh, about three quarters of, of global healthcare workers uh, last Monday called uh, called on governments to step up climate action at at the COP26 uh, conference, and saying it could save millions of lives a year. Uh, who's against Who's against saving lives? Well, you'd be surprised, but apparently there are a lot of folks. Anybody who's in the fossil fuel industry that makes money from the fossil fuel industry, um, Joe Manchin. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, right now we know uh, the data is in, the science is in. Fossil fuel air pollution kills about 7 to 8 million people globally every year. Um, it's mostly in developing countries like India and China and Bangladesh, where there are fewer environmental controls um, and the air pollution is is historically bad. But yes, the, in the United States alone, I think it's something like 20,000 people die every year from air pollution-related ailments. Uh, so there have been studies that have shown that the U.S., by cutting its emissions, which also in turn cuts air pollution, by switching to electric cars, by uh, uh, working to reduce air pollution from power plants like natural gas power plants and coal-fired power plants, methane emissions from oil and gas drilling, all of those actions would not only save lives, but would save billions of dollars a year in public health care costs. So, you know, all of these actions pay for themselves, by not killing people. Right. And yet we do have a problem with our oil industry, which is extremely powerful, uh, is uh, makes sure that people don't hear that part of the equation, uh, that, you know, they have a, a huge propaganda arm that they have used for decades now to lie about climate science and lie about the impacts of air pollution. 
Tell it to the people that just uh, that are wallowing in the uh, the oil spill uh, uh, out, outside of uh, the southern beaches right now. Yes, I mean we've got we've got a huge problem on our hands. That's you know, and by the way, that's one other thing that would be really good if it could stay in the Build Back Better Act. Some of those provisions include creating a civilian climate corps, which would be modeled after the New Deal Civilian Conservation Corps that built much of our roads and bridges mm-hmm. and our national parks. So a climate conservation corps, a civilian climate corps, I mean, would, uh, would be intended to employ young people in doing all kinds of work that needs to be done around the country, not just building up and rebuilding and repairing our infrastructure or preparing our infrastructure of climate resilience, but also cleaning up uh, abandoned oil wells and gas pipelines, uh, reclaiming brownfields that are polluted areas in in uh, in, turb- in urban areas. Uh, building new, better water systems and flood control systems and other uh, resilience-minded infrastructure projects that will uh, help repair what we've got damaged right now and get it ready for the climate impacts to come. So that's another aspect that would be in the Build Back Better Act if if it passes. Yeah. Uh, uh, to remind everyone, we are speaking with Desi Dorian, a Green News reporter with bradblog.com and... KPFK's broadcast show. Uh, Desi, let's talk about uh, you. You started hinting at what's good. Let's let's talk about um, what David Roberts uh, calls uh, genuine no BS action and what it <laughs> would look like. Other than Google, you know, stop letting YouTubers make money off climate change denial. Other than that, well, that's. Pretty good, big deal, I have to say. You know that at least they're demonetizing it so that they can't make as much money off of it on YouTube and other Google properties. But um, what David Roberts uh, is talking about, and and he's an energy writer uh, at the Volts newsletter, and it's available online. And he he does a really good job of sort of synthesizing all of the aspects of climate change and also solutions. So I highly recommend his newsletter and his archive of articles over at Vox.com. But his Volts newsletter, like he does deep dives into what's happening with battery technology uh, for cars and for uh, larger applications like a utility-scale battery like the one that we have now here in Southern California, which many people don't know, is the largest battery farm in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about to be surpassed by a new battery farm being built in Florida, which by the end of the year will then be the largest in the world. But it does he does give you an overview of the kinds of things that are changing right now, the kind of positive news that says, hey, look, no matter what the headwinds are uh, in Congress and in politics, there are people who are moving ahead in states and in companies that are moving ahead on transitioning us to the, uh, this next phase of the clean energy economy, because that's where we're going now. Um, and so anyway, David Roberts, in his uh, overview, he says we have basically three, three tenets that we have to push for. Mm-hmm. One is you know, renewable energy. Obviously, we have to transition away from using fossil fuels and transition to using renewable energy. And that includes, you know, the obvious choices of solar and wind energy and battery storage in order to smooth out the differences and the intermittency that you find with solar and wind. Then also, uh, beyond the uh, the usual wind and solar, there's also hydropower. Now, hydropower has some problems. Hydropower has issues when there's a drought, like we know right now, the Lake Oroville Dam, the reservoir there, has had to shut down because of the drought in California, making it impossible for it to generate power. That is going to be an ongoing concern, meaning that hydropower has a huge Achilles heel. Beyond that, uh, there's also geothermal. And geothermal is still in its infancy as far as an energy source. It has to be done carefully, but it is nonetheless a very good uh, and and wide open area that can be explored for sustainable and constant energy uh, sources. So now that's one of the things that you know we uh, we expand and really accelerate our deployment of renewable energy. So that's number one. Right. Uh, number two is energy efficiency, 
And this is the low-hanging fruit that is the easiest to do and that also is included in the Build Back Better Act, helping homeowners uh, to retrofit their homes for energy efficiency because the energy that you don't use is the cheapest energy of all. And that is a huge area that we can make a huge amount of difference in, uh, not just in homes and in buildings. Buildings are, are one of the biggest emitters, uh, one of the biggest shares of U.S. emissions in the United States. Transportation comes first. That's the biggest emitter in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we switch over to electric cars. We'll take a huge chunk out of the transportation emissions. Number two, uh, emissions from uh, power generation, and that is used to be number one, but since we've started to uh, transition away from using expensive polluting coal, that has now fallen to the number two largest source of emissions. And if we switch more to renewable energy, then we can help to to uh, retire these coal plants that are already on the way out and retire natural gas plants that are also polluting. They're, mm-hmm. you know, half as much the emissions as coal, but it still pollutes, mm-hmm. and it still adds to emissions. So, and the third are buildings, buildings and agriculture. So we have places where we can change by increasing our energy efficiency in buildings. We can take a huge chunk out of our emissions. So then finally, the uh, final leg of this, uh, of this effort that David Roberts uh, summarizes is electrify everything. Everything that can be electrified, every process that can be electrified, every uh, aspect of our economy that can be electrified, if we push to electrify everything, that will make a huge change in what we do and the amount of emissions that we have. So there's a couple of really difficult uh, to decarbonize areas of the economy, like uh, like steelmaking. Um, steelmaking requires coal up to now, but surprise, there's a new company um, in Switzerland, I think it's Switzerland, that has, uh, uh, sorry, Sweden, in Sweden, that has innovated a way to make steel without coal using hydrogen instead, Mm -hmm. hydrogen generated from renewable energy. So there are big innovation changes being made right now around the world that can meet these three different prongs of, of how we decarbonize, the renewable energy, energy efficiency, and electrify everything. It uh, is possible to do. It's just really hard, and we have to get started on it. Okay. And, well, and there's the positive aspects of this, Tizzy, are that this is... Uh, like like any movement, it's going on uh, at a grassroots level. Uh, if you know, even if you consider some of these companies, uh, these worldwide companies that are uh, grassroots organizations, really because they're coming up with innovative ways uh, to to tackle. <laughs> it's a yeah. football term. It's one thing to tackle them; the other thing to keep them on the ground. I yeah. mean, there are solutions going on right now. Uh, there's innovation. There's you know super deep research going on right now. I mean, it is it is doable. It's going to be very hard because, of course, we have so many incumbent industries that are hoping to keep the status quo so they can continue making their profits by polluting for free. You know, the biggest, I think the biggest top line from all of this is that all of the studies, and I mean all of the studies that have been done looking into the future, trying to model the pace of change that we're in right now as far as our decarbonization, they all show that the cost of action, the cost of acting on climate change, the cost of you know going through with re- renewable energy, transitioning to a clean energy economy, all of that, that cost is actually way cheaper than if we just kept doing what we were doing because the cost of oil, gas, and coal continues to rise. The cost of finding new oil, gas, and coal reserves continues to rise. They're very volatile commodities, whereas it's actually cheaper for renewable energy to deploy them because once you build it, the fuel is free forever. Huge savings. It's something like, I think, I'm probably going to get these numbers wrong, but if we kept doing what we were doing and we did nothing, we did not act on climate change, just the cost in energy that we'd be investing is something like $27 trillion. And if we go to renewable energy, energy efficiency, and electrifying everything, it would be less than that, like $25 trillion. So we'd actually be saving trillions of dollars. And that's not even including the public health savings from not killing people, 
from air pollution and not killing people from extreme weather disasters and not losing our infrastructure and having to repair it over and over and over and over again from extreme weather disasters. Yeah. It's actually cheaper to act yeah. on climate. Well, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty, sh- pretty soon we're talking about real money. Exactly. Okay, on that note, on that positive note, I think, Desi Doyen, Green News Reporter with Bradblog.com and KPFK's Bradcast Show. You, you want to uh, give yourself a plug, give the show a plug? Absolutely. Um, the Bradcast is heard on Mondays at 3 p.m. on KPFK, and uh, you can also uh, hear our shows every day, uh, every day of the week at kpfk.org. And you can follow Brad on Twitter at the Brad Block, and you can follow me on Twitter at the at, at Green News Report. And I try to keep up with as much as I can to help you stay up to date on what's the latest in energy and environment news and politics and uh, just everything that's tra- that's going on. You know, we're trying to bring you the most up-to-date information so that, you know, voters can make informed decisions about the kind of future that they want to build for themselves and their families. Excellent, Desi. Thank you very much, and keep up the great work. That was Green News Reporter for Bradblog.com and KPFK's Desi Doyen. She spoke with Digital Village's Rick Allen. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see, see you online. online.